So glad all of you are here. We have a fancy title for today's event. How many of you were attracted by this topic? How many by being at Spirit Rock? How many are new to being at Spirit Rock? Many today. Welcome. That's lovely. So as Paige was saying, I've, um, I'm one of the original Spirit Rock teachers. Um, and these days, these day-long retreats for me over the years are a great joy because I have a lot of confidence in the efficacy and the value of practice. Uh, I know that it is a, a tried and true, a reliable cause of greater well-being. No matter what you're going through in your life, if you can make that shift from being simply carried along by the events of your life, both the inner and the outer events, that shift from being carried along by those events to being able to notice them, to be able to bring this friend, this accompaniment of awareness, then every experience becomes more workable, becomes a potential cause of of wisdom, because when, when there's attention, there's wisdom, also becomes the cause of compassion and kindness. When there is attention, there's also affection. Without attention, we just are sleepwalking, dreaming. And everything in our culture, everything in our life is basically teaching us. We have been taught from day one to, uh, to be basically unconscious, to go unconscious, to distract ourselves any way we can to be somewhat oblivious to the reality of the present moment, oblivious to this great, as I called it before, this great friend that we have within us called awareness, called what's more specifically in what we practice here called mindfulness, this fullness of mind, this lucid awareness, a knowing of what's actually happening in the present moment. So I invite you, even as we start today, to... to this may sound strange, to know that you're knowing, to know that you're aware, and see what that's like, just to be, just to know that you're aware and awake, that you're not, you're not dreaming, you're not, uh, you're not lost in your, in the imagined past right this moment, you're not lost in what is to happen in the future this moment, you're here. And you'll notice that the more moments that you find yourself here, aware, even if it's aware of something unpleasant, the moments that you're here, aware that you're here, are moments that you're actually dropping a little drop of peace into your system. Because when you are, you could say, silently noticing, like notice what you're noticing right now. That moment of noticing is a moment of peace. Even if what you're noticing is, I'm nervous, agitated, I'm tired, my body hurts. That moment of noticing that, you're not caught up in your body hurting or tired. You know, oh, this is what body hurting is like. This is what nervousness is like. That moment you're mixing. I don't know if this makes sense to you but you're mixing a little peace with whatever you're experiencing. You're mixing a quality, uh, what we call mindfulness, but it's a quali- it's, 
Mindfulness has the quality of being non-reactive. It's not wanting things to be any different than they are. It's open. It's a quality of, of acceptance, of non-reactivity, of non-elaboration. You're not elaborating on what's going on. You're just with the simplicity of it. So whatever it is you're experiencing right now, just know it. The more you know what you're experiencing, the more you will become interested in what you're experiencing. The more you become interested in what you're experiencing, the less contentious you will be with what you're experiencing. Less contentious, the opposite of contentiousness, is goodwill, is kind, is open. And the more goodwill, just the more Especially when you're experiencing something painful. It comes, flows naturally. We don't give ourselves the opportunity so often. We don't stop enough to, you know, you can basically bring this quality of mindfulness, this, this non-contentious, non-judgmental awareness, you can bring it to every experience that you have from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to sleep at night. But this habit of knowing what you're experiencing does not seem to take root in your stream of consciousness unless you um, train it a little bit. This is another beautiful thing about the awakening teachings of the Buddha and many different traditions, but especially the, the Buddha's tradition, is the acknowledgement that you are trainable. You can train yourself to be happier to be more loving, to be more wise. Um, Even though it is your natural state to be aware, we're not in the habit of it. We're in the habit of being distracted. So you'll notice even over the course of the day, if you keep training in this formal way with the support of each other, that you will, as, as the day goes on, you will find yourself in spite of maybe at some point getting tired or restless or planning your escape or whatever you might do, you'll notice that you're more here. And you'll notice that your mind being in the same location as your body for a change. Does that make sense, that language? Instead of 10 steps ahead or 10 steps back? That your mind in the same location of your body you will start to feel the natural effect of that, which is calm. And the natural effect of calm is that you start to, the dust starts to settle and the mirror, the mirror-like nature of your mind starts to shine through. You start to see more clearly. And what you see more clearly, you become more interested in. You become more interested in what's happening in the living present and why do I call it the living present? Because the, the past is dead and the future hasn't happened. The only thing there is, is the living present. Alive, here. This is the only reality there is. All of us sitting together in this room. Everything else is a story. This is the living reality. So the more you get used to that living reality, the desire to be in one of those imagine past or future, just starts to melt away. You want to be, you want to be here, actually. 
Now, do we usually feel that way? I want to be here. Normally, we want to be somewhere else. That is the chronic human habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are, wanting to be someplace else or with some other experience. How about the possibility of actually wanting what you have and not wanting what you don't have? But we live with exactly the opposite habit. And that habit is very innocent. It's not your fault. Again, I, I started to say that every day we're taught to want something different than what we have. As uh, one Tibetan teacher says, that it's all about the consumer machine, marketing, that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. You know, the whole, our whole structure is about the obsession with what's next. So what we'll hopefully become obsessed with a little bit today in the most gentle way, but uh, the reality of the present moment. And that is both a wise approach to life and it is a, a loving approach to life, to love what is. Not how things could be, should be, would be, but how things are. To the extent that we can open our heart to it. Now that may sound kind of simplistic in the, in the face of so much um, pain in this world. So many... So much ignorance, so much confusion, so much fear. But it turns out that the only place that we can find a, a means, uh, a clarity, a loving heart to respond wisely and lovingly to this world and all its injustice, the only place that we can find that is in the awakening of our, um, of our hearts. When we're not awake, we tend to respond to the world. We don't respond to the world that we find. We react to it. And we tend to tighten up, freeze, and then live in our, in our spinning, in our story of how terrible everything is in the world. And then we're actually useless in terms of being in terms of organizing and, and uh, expressing ourselves and doing it in a, with a loving heart and not letting it devolve into hatred. Any of you notice over the last several months your mind devolving into reactivity and hatred? Or is, that, is everyone here enlightened? <laughs> so we need to not only protect the world with our caring hearts, but we need to protect ourselves from becoming part of the causes and conditions that lead to more injustice and more hatred. Because we are all based on our own internal drama, based on our own uh, relative privilege. We are shrouded in obliviousness. We can easily sleepwalk through our life and not know how difficult it is for so many people on a daily basis. And then our heart just, um, our heart it ends up being a lot smaller than it can be. So this is a process, this awakening to wisdom and love, it's, a, it's an awakening. It's a coming out of the, the tangle of our 
uh, of our just um, individualistic, self-preoccupied heart uh, to a wider, a wider circle of caring, a wider circle of affection. But paradoxically, the w- one of the ways that we come out of the tangle of our self-isolation is to actually give ourselves some attention, to listen, to heal ourselves. And it, seem, it turns out to be when I'm in a state of wholeness or homeness, I hope this makes sense, when I'm home with myself, I'm full. That fullness just spills over. It spills over as a, as a, one, I'm more present. Look, if I'm more present with you today, I will inevitably care about you more. If I'm preoccupied, I won't even notice you. I'll just be caught up in my own self-consciousness. But if I'm really present with you, I can't help but, to some degree, in the, in the most neutral sort of way, fall in love with you. And you, then I'm more likely to be able to resonate with your, your situation, your suffering, whatever it might be. And if I resonate with that, I'm actually, I, I tend to be more wise in how I am with you. So if, I'm, if I take care of myself, then it ends up being, being a, um, an act of, it's a, a kind of social action. And I consider this opening the, clearing, clearing the mind and opening the heart at, um, a radical social action. And I'll just share one last quote with you from a teacher named Nisargadatta that hopefully will inspire you to uh, take care for the world by taking care of yourself wisely and lovingly. He said, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. As long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. That if we truly want a peaceful, just world, there have to be peaceful and just people. Not just lip service, you know. Peace and justice cannot be imposed on the world. It has to start within our hearts. So you may think of spending a day in meditation as somehow apart from, the, from social justice and from all that needs to be cared for in this world, but it really is part and parcel. And I, I really, I thank you in advance. All beings are cheering you on today for coming home to yourselves, to coming out of the tangle of reactivity and ill will, fear, and you're planting a seed to, that affects all beings. When you're well, um, it spills over. hope you have a wonderful day of practice. We will, I'll slowly elaborate on the theme of the day. I didn't really look at the blurb before I came, but I, this is something I, it's near and dear, so I will just say from the beginning that the most um, loving thing that you can do for yourself 
is to be wise. Not to be sowing the seeds of well-being, non-contentiousness, non-harming, understanding, generosity, patience, all the wholesome, wise qualities. And ultimately, the, the, the wisest thing, I said the most loving thing that you can do is to be wise. Because if you're unwise, you're con- continually creating the seeds of suffering. That's not very loving. So the most loving thing that you can do is wake up and be wise. And then finally, the most wise thing that you can do when you see the nature of your experience, when you see what it's like, when you understand more what it's like, what is common to all beings, all humans, what everyone has to deal with, the, effect, the way that we are so deeply interwoven um, with everything that's happening in life, wisest thing you can do is to be loving. It makes absolutely no sense to be anything but loving to yourself and others. And hopefully, as we elaborate on the practice of wisdom and love today, it'll make sense by the end of the day. It probably already does to you. For those of you who are here for the first time, I'll just say that... um, Welcome to Spirit Rock. Spirit Rock is, doesn't belong to anyone, doesn't belong to the teachers. It's, it is really what we, we often say, it has no self. <laughs> it's made up of anyone who comes and whatever you bring to Spirit Rock, whatever you want to offer. You're, there are many people who are volunteering today and uh, you can make it your home or not, uh, but it is, it is um, you're all welcome and everyone is welcome here. There is no one who is excluded from being here. And not only is everyone welcome, all races, all genders, all orientations, all, a- all those who are able, less able, also all parts of yourself are welcome here. Any part of yourself. And what we often say in our practice, at least what I call it, I call it equal opportunity mindfulness, which means everything that presents itself in your experience here today, even if you are spending the whole day judging me, judging the place, judging your experience, every single experience that you're having today, if you can notice it, if you can be aware, and you notice, oh, here, I'm hating on this, per-, you know, whatever it is. If you can notice it, it's the right experience. Even if you don't notice it, it's the right experience, because it's the experience that's happening. So we do not try to manipulate our experience here. We don't try to have a different experience than what we're having. We try to use every experience as an opportunity to brighten that quality of awareness and then have the f- what flows from awareness, which is wisdom, or clarity, and kindness, to be able to meet that experience that you're having with openness.
So there's nothing that you can experience today that is outside of the meditation, if you can notice it. So I also recommend, since there are so many people who are new to Spirit Rock, how many are new to meditation practice? Not so many. Well, it, what, whoever is new to meditation practice, I forgot what I was going to say now. I'm happy. Whoever's here, I'm happy. Say that again. It'll come out some point during the day. So a few things that... Did you want to say something? I think there is air moving. If there's not, we'll do something about it. In the, now this is an opportunity to just notice what that's like. And, and are you noticing any reaction to it? And what's the reaction, would you say? Okay, so can you notice, can you notice the frustration? Be able to say inwardly. Please. Thank you. Well, we can maybe as the day goes on, we can. It's such a beautiful day. So, a few things, a few rituals seem to be very. Um, very useful to remind us that we're. This is just kind of not a normal day at the at the shopping mall. First ritual that, or consideration that anyone who comes to a monastery or does a practice period, hopefully you carry this through your whole life, is that uh, we we realize that what we're always looking for in our life is happiness. What joins all of us together is the longing for happiness. In fact, the Dalai Lama says the purpose of our life is to be happy. That all beings want to be happy and want to be free of suffering. But as we know, we are inundated with a whole range of methodologies that are uh, promising happiness but often lead us to more and more dissatisfaction. Like one teacher put it, like um, crying out in thirst and all that our culture offers us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So we instead, for this time, and hopefully you make it a habit in your life, what the suggestion is, is instead of going to 
distraction or to the shopping mall or to your smartphone or to the refrigerator or to uh, the imagined past or the imagined future for refuge, for relief, what's recommended here, what we agree to experiment with, is we go to the capacity to be awake and aware. It's otherwise known as the Buddha. Buddha means awake. I go to the Buddha for refuge. It doesn't mean you go to the historical Buddha. He's dead. Thousands of years ago. But he was called the Buddha because Buddha means awake. He woke up to that, an inexhaustible well-being that lives in each of us. And it, it expresses itself as this quality of aware presence. Awake. I'm aware of what's happening. We've talked about that already. So we agree, instead of going to distraction, we go to aware. And then, instead of going to, as I mentioned before, how I want things to be, how they could be, they should be, how they were, how I hope they will be, we go to, for our purposes, at least in order to be able to respond to our life wisely, we go to the way things are. I go to the Dharma. Dharma means the way things are. Nature. We go to our body, however it's feeling. That's nature. We go to whatever's arising at any of our senses. What we're hearing, what we're seeing, what we're smelling, what we're tasting, what we're feeling. That's dharma, just truth. Dharma means truth. Dharma means nature. Dharma means the way things are. Dharma also means the teachings, but we we use them as a support, but not as a, a set of beliefs to adopt. We just use them to remind us to of the living dharma, the living truth. So I go to the Buddha for refuge, the dharma for refuge, so aware of what's happening. And last but not least, I go to what's called the sangha for refuge. Sangha means community. I go to the support that I receive and that I offer by connecting with the people I'm sitting with. And then I connect with also the all the people who've made it possible for me to be here. The countless millions who've, who've practiced like this, who've had an awakening and then through their compassion and their generosity shared the teachings. And we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that stream of what's called the Arya Sangha, the Sangha of Awakening that's carried through. But in the most immediate sense, it's just us together. And drawing on the support so different practicing with a group of people than practicing alone. So at some point when you, when you ask yourself, why am I here? Or, oh, I could, be, I could be doing something else. Just look around every now and then or just feel the sense of being lifted by, by everyone else. And also consider part of your intention for being here to help lift other people to help support them. The, I don't know how many of you have heard the statistics about how geese, when they fly together, they get 83% lifting, greater lifting power, and they get where they're going faster. It's, it's just the same, same quality when people practice together. So everybody agreeable to going to the Buddha for refuge, the Dharma for refuge, the Sangha for refuge today? Really in that most immediate way. It doesn't mean you become Buddhist. Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Buddha was awake. 
want to identify yourself as a Buddha somewhere along the line, that's fine. But it's really about waking up. Everybody's agreeable to. And in that spirit of, of today, going to the Buddha Dharma Sangha for refuge means also closing the exit doors. Means really giving yourself to this process. The only way that you actually know whether it it um, works or it's of benefit is to do it. Because your mind at some point, when because it's so unused to going against the stream of your habit of distraction, it will plan its escape at some point during the day. And I would say put that to good use and just treat it as resistance or just notice it. Because your mind will start being very clever. Oh, my body's tired. I've had enough. Uh, oh, I have so many things to do. And so we use all of that just as our, um, as part of our practice today. We don't, and it just saves you so much stress by just not having to consider whether you're leaving or not. Said for those of you who are stuck here on CEUs. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like I'd like to invite everyone to be stuck here. Let's <laughs> see, just for your own happiness. I mean, you will you'll actually suffer a lot less if you don't plan your escape intentionally. And having said all that, you're free. You are free to do as you see fit. The second thing that we agree to do in order to have the least amount of stress here. The greatest amount of ease and safety is to agree to some ways of being together today. This is both wise and loving. Uh, And that is to agree not to harm anyone here. Uh, To have a reverence for each life form that's sitting here. Traditionally, this training guideline is to not kill. But I don't think we have to worry so much. But, you know, there are places right in nearby where that precept is not held very carefully. That training guideline is not lived by. There is every day, there is untold number of uh, intentional acts of ill will, of killing. We agree not to, we, to go against that stream. Just commit to knowing that every life form wants to, wants to be here, wants to thrive. And that we want to honor that. Not killing. We agree to be together and not take anything that's not offered, which means not stealing. And this is also a a training guideline to remind us to be content with what we have. To practice simplicity, to practice a gentle renunciation of our our, uh, constant need for more. And what's next? But to settle back and to say, okay, I have everything. Was it the, one of the Zen patriarchs that said, to know what is enough is true wealth. We agree to not uh, kill, not steal, not flirt. No flirting. <laughs> Preferably no spinning out in sexual fantasies, no acting out in any, any not making any intentional uh, contact with anyone else, giving each other 
the gift of solitude today, the gift of safety. So the most generous thing you can do is leave whoever you came here with, leave them alone. Pretend you don't know them. Let them have the gift of being able to step out of their identity as friend or partner of all those things that we're usually caught up in and just experience life really simply. Being, hearing, smelling, tasting, really coming home to ourselves. As Derek Walcott says, to the stranger who has loved us all our life, whom we've ignored for another, who knows us by heart, come back. So traditionally this is to make a commitment to celibacy, but I don't think we'll have to concern ourselves with that for today. Next, uh, to agree to be together in no... In the, this is also in that same spirit of solitude, of protecting each other's solitude, the commitment to noble silence, not to uh, engage in speech with one another. Now... In general, we tend, I tend to encourage people to keep that silence during the lunch time, but many of you may want to eat together. If you do, try to do it in a place where you're not interrupting anyone else's solitude, where you really give whoever wants to be quiet to have that, that field of quiet. It's very rare in this world. We're always, so much energy is going out of our mouths. So this is a way of re, rebuilding our reservoir. Last but not least, that we agree to clarity of mind, openness of heart, agree to uh, not taking any intoxicants, that um, recreational drugs, alcohol, that tend to cloud our perception, lead to carelessness, heedlessness, untold amounts of suffering. We agree instead to, um, to refrain from any, any drugs or alcohol for this time. And ideally, you want to carry these training guidelines in your life if you really want to have wisdom and love. But these are not commandments, they're, they're training guidelines, and they, they're helpful. But you have to work with them in your own way. And for the time of this retreat, at least, let's everybody agree to these guidelines? Great. I feel safer already. Without further ado, let's start our formal practice today. Loving thing that we can do is to be wise. And to be wise, we have to be able to see clearly. Mm. Clearly, we have to have our attention in the same location as our body. Wake up to the living present. So I'd like to invite you to find a, feel free to stretch your, um, you know, to refresh your posture a little bit. And maybe crack some windows, just a little bit, volunteers. It is getting a little warm and stuffy, thank you. Just little bits. That's perfect. 
as I'm looking around, I'm just appreciating that you're here, and I'm, I know that the people who have to live around you every day will be so happy that you came here today. On your mark. Turns out that some of our spiritual yearning has led us to certain views about our spiritual yearning, that it's all about transcendence, all about getting out of this world. Even the popular literature is about the... the Rapture, most, most books sold about the idea of, of the ones who have found God transcending, going into the heavens. But in this tradition, the freedom is imminent. It's in the body, it's not out of body. But the way out is in is here. It's not to get somewhere else. In fact, the Buddha, in one of the famous sutras or discourses called the, uh, a body of what are called the numbered teachings, called the Anguttara Nikaya, he said, there's one thing, O monks, and you're all monks today, that leads to focus, a calm abiding, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to transcendence, of, to the attainment of knowledge, fruit of knowledge. There's one thing, O monks, and what's that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body, because the body becomes calmed, mind becomes calm. Clarity. arises the abandonment of the taints which means our mind becomes less reactive and lo and behold we find ourselves at home in the midst of our life instead of having to get out of it so one of the ways that we can find a pleasant dwelling in this very life to come into our body is to take a posture that is um, that expresses our interest in being here. That's gently upright, and dignified. 
Elvis dropped, which light forward tilt on our pelvis, letting it drop, our shoulders relaxed, our back free, ideally. Contact of the, on the earth in three places are, if you're sitting on a chair, your feet and your rear end, on the cushion, your knees and your rear end. Let your eyes close softly. Moments of noticing the effect of your eyes closing. You'll feel a kind of stilling, a steadying. Experience your body from the inside. Direct experience, which is mostly sensation. Sensation of your rear touching the cushion or the chair. Feeling that you're here. Feeling the touch of the hands, touch of the lips, softly and touching, relaxed because we don't look with our eyes in meditation, experience with our whole being. Awareness has no. Here, the hands, the lips, the eyes. We feel the form or shape of our body, aware of the whole body sitting. Hover long enough with this feeling of the whole body until we feel its aliveness, feel its vibration, just sensation. of that field of sensations, you'll start to feel the, the sensations that are created by your breathing. And just noticing the body's experience of its own breath. Chest or the belly rise and fall. Don't have to help it along. Our body breathes all by itself. We just accompany this body breath with our kind and interested and relaxed attention. Half breath at a time.
Wisdom is experiencing the breath. Wise attention. Unwise attention would be thinking about the breath. We want to Smooth, deep, shallow. Not try to manipulate it or alter it in any way. Just let the breath breathe itself. Initial tool. Our initial training. Accompany the body's breath with a soft. of breathing.
fantasy. And at some point we wake up again. Realize that you have drifted off. That means you're already back here. That reawakening, relax. And in behalf of staying connected to the immediate and living present, we can we feel our body again and our breath. Sink into the experience of the breath. We stick to it. We spread out all around it. We don't miss any part of the breaths that we are here for. This, there's no judgments. Trust this breath just this moment. Past is gone, future unborn. It's just this.
back on the paper. Please celebrate the moments that you realize moment, just this breath. Simple experience.
feel a little bit of the effect of having your attention be more present, your nervous system regulated a little bit, some of the physiological effects of meditation. You may have also noticed that um, all those things you hadn't noticed before about your restlessness or your achy body or your level of fatigue or insight at the beginning is often bad news. Just (laughs) aware of our condition. And so this, at first, uh, it's not surprising to, oh, not so easy. On the other hand, there is that sometimes that beginner's luck or that beginner's feeling of, oh, Finally home. And there's also a feeling, sometimes a feeling of sadness. Any of you felt sad during that sitting? So like we've come home to ourselves, and then we, in that feeling of coming home, we, we, there's a longing. Like where have I been? Where have I? What? I've, I've just been away from home. So any number of things can show up, and we just use it all as part of our practice. Like I said before, whatever you're experiencing is the right experience, especially if you're noticing it. But um, insight at the beginning is, we often, know, we often come into much closer contact with those feelings that we often don't, uh, don't acknowledge, that we're usually moving too quickly to notice the level of fatigue, the level of of um, physical discomfort, etc. So not to be surprised, it's not always a bliss trip. And because you've been sitting for a while, we, I'll take, I'd love to hear all about your practice, but I'll wait until after the next sitting. But we've been sitting, and in the, in the Buddha's wisdom, uh, he recommended that we alternate periods of sitting with walking. Of course, he also recommended that you have an equal val- valuing of mindfulness and kindness in all postures, sitting, standing, lying down, and moving to and fro. But for our formal practice, for our informal practice, it's, it's everywhere. You bring mindful attention to everything. Our, inform- our formal practice, we do periods of sitting like we just did, uh, mixed with walking meditation and Equal partner, absolutely equal partner to the to the sitting is the walking. You know, in the sitting, I have this aware presence, and I'm aware of sitting and everything that goes along with sitting. When I walk, I have the same aware presence, but instead of attending to the movement of my breath and my body as my main anchor and noticing everything else, in the walking, I use as my primary anchor just the movement of my legs, my steps, and I just let that feeling of walking bring me here over and over again. And with that, I'll notice sounds, I'll notice sights, I'll notice feelings in my body. But mostly, I want to rely, at the beginning of our practice period, I want to rely on our primary anchor. In the, again, in the sitting, our primary anchor is a simple, ever-available experience of breathing. And that makes it possible for us to begin to be, have some harmony of mind and body, some calm, some focus that allows us to then start to notice all the other experiences that present themselves inevitably. In the walking, we use as our primary anchor just the feeling of our legs moving, the contact of our steps, the same exact quality of aware presence. 
And we just give our attention to that for a while. And, of course, other things will call your attention. And we, we don't leave the, the steps in the walking initially. We, we intentionally, we just keep connecting. But as we go along in the walking, if something comes into your mind or some mood, some place in your body that calls your attention, you can stop and attend to that experience. But for the most part, just walking and know you're walking. So I'll demonstrate so that we don't we can get right to it. Wireless today, so the difference between taking a walk and formal walking for those of you who are not so familiar is we choose an area. Hopefully you're also mindful of the transition, which I was not so much just now, from sitting to the walking place. We choose an area about the distance between me and, I don't know your name, but Teresa, Teresa, me and Teresa. And instead of taking a walk, we walk to and fro. Again, the same aware presence, Buddha, awake. The Dharma, in this case, is the standing posture and then moving. And I feel my legs and I walk at a pace that I can actually feel the steps swinging of my legs and the placing of my feet. So in some ways I have not left my cushion. Still, wherever you go, there you are. You know that quote. Just stepping, stepping. First, I generally start at a pace that's a little slower than my natural pace just so that I can feel it but not so slow that I'm teetering over or tensing up. I'm walking at a pace that I can be attentive, but I can be relaxed and I can stay in balance and I can stay interested. Of course, if I move too quickly, I won't notice much and so I won't have a lot of interest. So I want to slow down enough just to feel it, to call myself here, One of the reasons that we walk to and fro is to remind ourselves that we're not going anywhere. The whole point is to arrive in the step we're taking. It's not, a, not about a destination. The destination is the step. So there's a quality of, instead of toppling forward into the where I'm going and the next moment, it's more a quality of settling back into the moment. So you can almost... You almost want to be equally aware of your back body. You know, usually everything is about moving, going. The Buddha was asked by someone, "Can you ever reach the end of the end of the cosmos, or the end of the world, the end of the uh, the drama by going?" He said, "No. You can't." can't achieve the end of suffering by going. But only those who reach the end of the world or the end of suffering, you know, wake up. But it turns out that the end is right here. The end of our... I'll elaborate later, but basically there was a quote, in this fathom-long body lies the world. 
lies the cause of the worlds that we create, lies the end of the world, and lies the path leading to the end of the world. So it's all about beginning, middle, and end is right here. Any questions about this? Again, a pace that's um, stay attentive, balanced, relaxed, and interested. And I generally start a little slower than natural, and then as my mind settles, I might notice that uh, I slow down a little more. But you don't force yourself to slow down. Uh, And when you are particularly tired or need a little energy, you can pick up the pace. Or you could go really microscopically slow. Sometimes that also arises energy, arouses energy. So it's up to you, though. Don't turn slow into a religion. It's, you know, this is how you're supposed to do it. That's not how it works. It has to come organically. This is your practice. You are your own authority in practice. And this is learning how to trust your own authority, your own wisdom, and your own kindness to see what is actually needed right now for my own practice. Any questions before we go out and do some walking? Anyway, thanks for hanging in there already. It's already been an hour and a half, and uh, we've been sitting the whole time. So thanks for your presence, your patience, for being here in general. And feel free to find a space outside in the hallways, whatever suits you. And we will walk for the next 30 minutes. In other words, 25 minutes from now, you'll hear a gong to call you back So between now and 25 minutes, please do walking and also be mindful, be attentive, be embodied as you make the transition to your walking and notice how you put on your shoes. Let everything be part of a seamless flow of mindful attention. And for the next few minutes, anyone who would like to come and check in with me, just come forward and um, anything about anything that's been said so far. I'll just, for the first few minutes, then I'll come out and walk with you. As I mentioned earlier, the shared longing in all, of all beings is to, is to be happy and to be free of suffering. Very central in the, in the Buddha's teaching that that pain is inevitable. Pain in the world is inevitable, but the suffering about it, the compounding of suffering is really optional. The pain of whatever you're experiencing here today is there'll be something that's hard to bear or not to your liking, but the suffering about that will be have nothing to do with that. It will have everything to do with the way that you relate to or react to the conditions that are presenting themselves. So you've heard this expression, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And what the practice of insight and love does is it transforms not so much the inevitable experiences that present themselves, but it transforms our reaction to them. It allows us to sit in the middle of of what can be sometimes a painful inner experience or outer experience Uh, with a lessening and 
sometimes a complete cessation of our mental reaction where we actually can meet the most painful things with open-heartedness and clarity. And that is really a function of whether or not we have a well-trained mind, a well-cultivated mind. Central in the Buddha's teaching, a lot of uh, the teaching comes out of a, a very simple, pithy passage from the Buddha where he said, I know of no other single thing so conducive to misery as this uncultivated, untrained mind. I know of no other single thing so conducive to well-being as this cultivated and well-trained mind. So clearly we are all in this world situation right now, this wave of change that for some is more of the same and for others is quite a dramatic shift. But there is, a, there's, there is a tendency for there to be a lot of reactivity of mind. And when we're reactive, we tend to freeze, as I mentioned earlier. And when we freeze, our body tightens and our, what, that tightening has to release somewhere. And the way it usually releases is it releases as a discharge of a lot of discursive thinking. And when, we, when there's a lot of discursive thinking, there's a, a quality of disembodiment. We lose touch with the immediate felt sense of our being here. And our mind goes into virtual um, proliferation, elaboration, complication. And usually within that, there is someone, especially when there's a feeling of aversion or not liking, there is someone or some people or something that the, our mind goes out and attaches to and blames and makes at that time our well-being dependent on that person, that situation changing. And w- what's truly happening at that moment is not so much, well, there, clearly there are very many problematic conditions in the world, but what's, what's happening for us individually is that we are self-abandoning. We are leaving ourselves. And to the degree that we are dependent on conditions externally, or even conditions internally, if we're dependent on conditions being the way we like them, then we live, we're living in a state of suspended happiness. We're living in a state of, I can't be happy until things are different. I can't be well. So our practice teaches us how to, how to learn to accommodate, to stay present, to stay embodied, even when we're experiencing something completely the antithesis of what we think is just, wise, beautiful, right, to be able to accommodate the whole range of experience, both pleasant be able to accommodate the great pleasantness that can come as a human, but to also to accommodate the, the deep pain of being human and the situations that we find ourselves in. To the degree that we be, stay disembodied, disconnected, blaming, demanding, expecting, we stay in a state of fear and dependency. And that's what the Buddha called bondage. 
cause of suffering, being in a state of, of a chronic state of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That keeps us spinning in what he calls samsara, an endless search for a future that never arrives because we've overlooked that time is always now. And if we can't find peace here, we can't find it anywhere. And if we're waiting for the conditions of the world to change, to find peace, then we will, we will endlessly wait for that future that never arrives. And it's really only from a place of presence that we can plant the seeds of a peaceful world, as I mentioned earlier today. That we can, it's only here with a loving heart that we can organize and that we can fight if, need, if fighting needs to be done. But from a, a reactive, angry heart, we just add to the burden, which is heavy enough. The wisdom tells us to stay here. Love tells us to stay here. And out of that comes our most, uh, from a well-trained, well-cultivated heart and mind, comes our wisest and most loving actions of body, speech, and mind. So that's why we spend, no matter whether you're on your first retreat or your last retreat, the way the Buddha taught that mindfulness of the body is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Because it puts us back in touch with with the source of well-being, the inexhaustible source of well-being that is independent of circumstances. So if we're dependent on circumstances, good luck. Likely to continue to be the way it is. But of course, we, out of love, we want to we, we do everything we can to be of benefit, to stop what needs to be stopped, to cultivate what needs to be cultivated, but we have to be here in order to do that. Whole and home. Strong, clear, courageous, open-hearted. That's what we're doing. We're, start, we're, we're trying to reclaim our heritage, our capacity to be a benefit, our capacity to be whole. As, the, as Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you who are the richest person on earth are going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. It's an insight. And once you're, as you're here, then be passionate about that um, active with your... I've never met anybody who didn't do... who didn't who their practice turned them into isolationists. Practice only leads to wanting to be of benefit. First things first. Sitting will just, just include the other foundations of mindful attention, which is basically the instructions that I offer today are really just descriptions of what you will notice anyway. And I just offer them in a gradual way just so that we're not overwhelmed by having to notice too many things. We start with the simple anchor, and we can continue to use the simple anchor of mindfulness directed to the body breath. 
And as I go through the day, I'll expand to include a, a whole, a, a, a whole range of physical sensations beyond the breath. Include sounds, eventually the moods that may be coming up, the states of the heart, states of the mind, and as well thoughts and images, everything included. Everything reminding you, any experience reminding you of your love of being right here. Cutting through that tendency to want to be elsewhere. Maybe you're already thinking about the end of the day. Anybody? You want to notice that. Oh, isn't that interesting? Leaning. Leaning. For now, we settle back into the moment. Find our body again. Pencils and pens. First-hand, direct, ex- direct experience. Awfully. Relaxed, upright. Sitting posture, bipedal ridges, back of our head. Hold into a gentle stillness, letting go, letting be. Sing the body's natural breath, which is sometimes short and sometimes long, rough or smooth, deep or shallow. Center, unless a sound comes, it becomes stronger than the breath, and just let the hearing occur. Sounds arise and pass away. Back to your body, come back to your breath. Other physical sensations call your attention, become stronger than the breath. Feel free to let the breath recede and let your attention rest in the foreground of whatever that sensation might be. Aching or burning or stabbing or itching or tingling or vibrating or pulsing, aching. Open to these experiences, accommodate them.
dominant sensation, we feel it, accept it, we notice what happens to it. Aching when it's felt, does it intensify, does it fade? The dominant sensation is being felt when it begins to fade or is less compelling or has passed away, then we settle back into experience of our body breathing, just this breath, just this moment. Fully learning to accommodate the whole range of experience. I'm just this breath, just this moment.
as you've been lost in thought, this is natural. Celebration that you're now awake, aware. Support remaining anchored to the living present. We connect with our body and breath again. ourselves and experience ourselves directly.
getting into a state of dullness, struggling, feel free to very mindfully, deliberately refresh your life, every moment is a new beginning. You can always be. Past gone, future unborn, there's just this. Sound, range of sensations. Noticing periodically as it is our experience this moment pleasant. Is it unpleasant? Is it either pleasant or unpleasant? We open to all three of these
And at that point where you're ready to open your eyes, be aware of the opening of your eyes, be aware of seeing, and then be aware of any We have a little time now for uh, a check-in to see how you are settling into this day. Uh, what you notice so far in the sitting and in the walking practice, any questions about the instructions, uh, or anything that's been set up to this point about, about the wisdom of being loving and the love and and the most loving thing is to be wise, and whatever it is that's been set up to this point.
Are there any comments, questions, descriptions? It's this time that I can probably be most useful, so don't be bashful. It's likely that whatever comment you have or question will be likely be of some benefit to someone else. So please uh, don't be bashful. It's part of your act of generosity. You had your hand first and then you next. Please. Beautiful. Great. I'm so happy that you noticed that that element of the practice, which is really the difference for many people between uh, suffering in practice and not suffering, is that partly there's a misunderstanding that happens. That moment that you realize that your mind has wandered is actually a moment of mindfulness. So that's that is the... That's the, there's no higher mountain to climb than that moment of waking up to where you are. Yet that's often the moment that we start judging ourselves for having drifted off. So we judge ourselves for having drifted off because we think that you actually did something to make yourself drift off. But you can see you drifted off involuntarily, didn't you? And you came back involuntarily. So the, the celebration of the fact that now you can... You can see clearly. I can see clearly now. The rain, you know, the rain is gone. So we celebrate that fact, appreciate that we've reawakened, and we start to see over time that even though you couldn't help the fact that you came back, that there were, it had something to do with the fact that you had been planting seeds of being aware in the moments that you were, and planting the seeds of being um, appreciative of those moments of being aware. And that the momentum of that starts helping you pop pop out when you've and have less moments where you're sleepwalking or dr- daydreaming and more where you're actually here and we don't judge the fact that we're daydreaming we just don't learn a lot while we're daydreaming while we're lost in thought and we're basically at the effect as i said before of everything that our mind is doing why we exploit why we really um try to appreciate and generate the moments that we're awake, is that when you see clearly, then you can understand. You know where you are. You know, oh, here I am. I'm not, I'm not on the beach somewhere. I'm not in the middle of, of that fight with my friend. I'm actually here at Spirit Rock remembering that person. And the thought of that person is not that person. The thought of the world is not the world. And it's so easy to forget that and live, literally sleepwalk, live in virtual reality pretty much all day long and miss our life. And when you miss your life, you don't like your life. When you don't like your life, you get mad, you get critical, you blame others. And what does the egoic mind do? They want to figure out how can I, how can I change the world? How can I, how can I keep... You know, it's their fault and I have to do something. And it's always about figuring out, always about trying to, to get it right. But what, what's most close, what's most near and dear gets forgotten. And then the more we forget ourselves, the tighter we get, the tighter we get, the more aversive and critical we get. Of course, it's very innocent that we lose contact with now. We've been taught to lose contact. We've been, we've been taught... We have not been taught to learn how to accommodate the pleasant experience that's here, the unpleasant that's here, to have a big open heart 
so that our heart breaks when we feel pain instead of gets angry. Uh, you had your hand up, please. Have this belief that thinking protects you and it's some kind of protection. Yeah, I think it. I think it, it has been a very commonly used defense from feeling. Right. Yeah, when I, when I say... Fear. That's fear. Yes, I thank you for voicing that because that's often true. We're, we're afraid of being here. One, for many of us, it wasn't safe to be here at different times. And our way of protecting ourselves was to, was to go into fight, flight, a fantasy, or just freeze. And so it, it is a process of learning how to, to re-inhabit uh, our the sense of immediacy. And it's natural, especially since it's, if we haven't been used to it, it's natural to be afraid of it. It's so, um, the Tibetans have this amazing little teaching called the four faults. Why we don't, why we don't inhabit our immediate wakeful presence, this natural, as they call it, the natural great peace that's possible right here. First fault is it's too close. Don't have to go anywhere. Second fault, it's too vast. You know, when you're here, it's just so much to accommodate. The little narrow world of our thinking, much easier to, in some ways, initially. So it's too close, it's too vast. The third, it's too wondrous. And then the, the fourth, and it may not seem like this at first. It's too easy. You can't believe that all we have to do is, is you know, wake up to where we are. Because of those four faults, we have spent a long time wandering. That's called samsara. And it's, it's left our body as a... It's left the only place that we have. Uh, it's turned into a scary place. It's turned to, as Eckhart Tolle says, the place that we... Um, pass through on our way to something else or the obstacle or the enemy when it really is the only reality is you and I talking right now. And, but the good news is it's possible to notice that fear and even use that fear, that adrenaline to slowly accommodate that, the unpleasantness and the more you can, just little moments of being with that as well when you find the, the adrenaline or the fear that arises in the, as you feel what it's like to be here. If you can't accommodate that, then there's usually something in your immediate environment that you can inv- accommodate so that you have another choice other than to check out into planning and remembering. You can actually notice that there may be a sensation in your foot touching the chair that's very neutral or pleasant. And you can take your attention to some place that's actually here. So that you're not, so you don't have to check out.
And that slowly, slowly, you call it titrating. You can move between that more neutral experience and that adrenaline. And slowly, slowly, you become more embodied. And And then finally you notice, oh, this is adrenaline. So what? I can do this. Please. <laughs> That's right. And thank you for, for calling it. Yeah, what we, you know, what we, at that moment that you are, that you realize you are aware. What I, what I often say is, in behalf of staying here, give yourself, because we're so used to not being so present, that we often, why there is meditation instruction, you're, you're naturally aware, you're naturally present, primordially present. That's your natural state. But the habit of mind is such that, we're, that we've become so habitually distracted that when you're here, we don't know how to stay here. We don't know how to get used to it. And so what we use to help us get used to it is some anchor. And that's why we use the breath. That's why you use the body. That's why we use the different sense experiences. So at that moment that you wake up, yes, you've already returned to your natural state of being present. But in behalf of staying here, you anchor your attention to the breath. Not because the breath is any better than than any other experience, but because it's a reliable anchor, you know, for some. For some people, the breath is a source of, of anxiety. So that's, you know, especially when we start to accommodate the fact that our body is breathing all by itself, it takes it out of the sense of identity or ego. You know, we think we own our breath. And the breath is just, the body is just breathing according to its needs. And that freaks us out a little bit. Anybody freaked out by the... Involuntary nature of breathing. So that's part. That can be part of getting used to being, being um, with the experience of the breath. And initially, if the breath feels like it's a, uh, it's a source of a lot of tension or reactivity, then just use the whole body sitting as your anchor. Or even feel free to use sound, you know, just hearing. So whatever orients you to the living present, that's the key. Please.
questions. Yeah, you, one can't help but do something. Right action. So, yeah. And then, but then if I'm doing right Thank you. Yes. No, I think you're not alone, and I think it's a beautiful question. And but mostly when we're when we are reacting, we are reacting to world events and family events, and I, I want to include everything, but not just single out the the world events. <clears throat> but we we tend to react, and and what you said beautifully is that we tend to act react with with anger, and then we tend to compound the our own feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, and ill will by. <clears throat> by coming from a place of reaction. And all that the meditation does, that you call it a sweet spot or something, is to allow you to, to before you act, to both accom- to accommodate the feeling of ill will, anger, to, to let, let that be felt. Because we do two things with anger, usually. And anger usually comes from our pride, our identity, being wounded because things aren't taking the shape of how we think they should be. Or, uh, or, and so our identity gets very tied into that. And also, which is really the same thing, frustrated desire. We really are frustrated. We want things to be a certain way. So we get angry. And, <clears throat> and what we do with that anger is we... We either act it out or we suppress it. No, I'm, I'm a good Buddhist. I'm a good loving person. And what our practice allows, helps us to do is find that middle place where we're not suppressing it nor are we acting out. We're feeling it. We're feeling the fury if it's fury. We're feeling the irritation if it's irritation. The, the, the aversion if it's aversion. Whatever flavor it is... <clears throat> learning how to metabolize that, letting it actually ferment, letting it break your heart how uncomfortable you are. That's not something we usually do. Usually into acting out, which is the blame, the demand, the immediate... <clears throat> Sometimes it goes into some good a- you know, action for a good thing, but it's driven the engine as anger instead of, instead of love and wisdom. So by feeling the feeling that we're experiencing, it, re, it, it reveals itself as a changing condition. If you notice and you're with anger for any length of time, it fades. And what it often leaves in its wake is what the anger was defending against, what the anger was hiding, which is often a feeling of, of uh, helplessness, something more tender something more vulnerable. And the more we're able to accommodate that and feel what, what is more vulnerable, there's something in that that quiets us. And that quietness, the quietness of our nature, when we really take in our vulnerability and feel it, 
What springs, you know, I can talk about it theoretically, but what springs naturally, our actions then spring from, from love. It's really hard to be, to be tense and, and full of hatred when we're, when we're tender. I, I wouldn't, I don't know if that's true. They're, they're all over the place. I mean, you should... I, I don't know who you're, who you're hanging out with, but... I, I, yeah, I think, that, um, I think that every single person expresses their, their love in different ways. You know, just like during the time of the Vietnam War, there were, there were those who went into monasteries, and that was more of a kind of a refuge model of being quiet. And then there were those who were on the, like Thich Nhat Hanh on the front lines, Maha Gosananda, the Cambodian monk, who were out there doing reconciliation, doing a lot of... And, and there's no model for, for how each person should express themselves. But in, in any case, whatever one does, one do, tries to do it out of goodwill, out of goodwill. And it seems like if I, if I were to look at my, I'll, I'll be with you in a second, if I were to look at my own life and the people around me, well, I'll just look at my own life. Everything that I've done that is wholesome and wise has come from quiet. It's as though the most creative, all creative action comes out of stillness comes out of emptiness. Most of the action that has come out of figuring, trying to figure it out, trying to be the best, be the best activist, has somehow gotten much more involved in a... Um, in, it's been more egoic, you could say. And it's when it's come from, sprung from quietness that I get the, the greatest epiphanies and the, and the most... Uh, clear sense of what to do and what not to do. So th- this is the opportunity to find that's exactly what you're looking for, being quiet. Most people are looking for a, a, a refuge right now. You come to Spirit Rock for a refuge, a place of rest where we don't, you know, we don't even, you know, for a day, it's okay. It's actually okay not to um, talk politics. In fact, I think that's what a lot of people are longing for. Please. Let's do the mic. When you you talked about pain, pain being inevitable, but suffering being optional, I noticed and do notice that physical pain... Um, I can respond to and not suffer with. Emotional pain, getting lost in my emotions and feelings and the story, is a little bit more challenging. And I wondered if you could say some more about how to work with pain and not suffering with emotions. Emotions. Well, the, the most simple response, thank you for your question, the next instruction will include how to work with more with mental states and states of the heart and states of the mind, moods and emotions. But the 
the bottom line is we're great at thinking about our feelings and we're not so good at feeling them. And usually feeling them would mean to also, there's usually a physical component. There is a felt sense of an emotion. We're usually, as you say, caught up in the story of, and that just keeps feeding the emotion. We're not so good at just feeling, oh, this is what anger feels like, or this is what sadness, this is what grief. So in other words, we have to expand beyond the story of what we're experiencing to include how it's felt in the immediate sense in the body. So few things happen in that. If you come out of the story and feel it through the body, one, you're very present. So it it begins a process of harmonizing already, of orienting you to real time. Because most of our, our mental proliferation is about what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. So it's imaginary in a way. So the the felt sense of what you're feeling anchors you here. It also allows you to, to respond not to the second-hand version of what's happening, but to the first-hand. The second-hand version is often not actually the primary experience that's happening. The, sec- the story is the second-hand. The primary is, oh, this feels, this is like, this feeling's like this. I always think of, you know, in a few of the different questions, I think of the Hafez, the ecstatic poet to his poem called Absolutely Clear. Are you all familiar with this? It says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. And then his second stanza, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of truth absolutely clear. There's something about just letting ourselves um, marinate in that, not, not um, embellish, not get schmaltzy about our feelings, just feel it. And what we then feel, not only are we more present and more tender, more home, we also see that that feeling is a changing condition and what fed it was, was being caught in the story and not feeling it. So that's what we'll, we're slowly learning how to, you know, especially right now, people having are so, such states of fear and reactivity. But most everyone is thinking about it, not actually feeling it. And that's what, the, what, what training of the heart is, is learning how to sit with all of it. Oh, this is what terror feels like. Easier. Talk about another to feel. Can't really hear you over here. Wait for the mic, please. We're going to have the. Can you or will you during the day begin to draw the connection between awakening and compassion and how to practice compassion? Sure. Yes. Yes. First half of the day is going to be about or about the wisdom side of things. The second will be more about the love. Wait, you had your hand up? Ple- oh, I, I, am I loud enough? Yes. Um, with the walking meditation.
Well, there, there, you know, in, in some traditions, there is a, there is a methodology, it's completely optional, of intentionally, as a way of staying connected to the experience you're having, intentionally counting. And counting breaths, counting steps. The, the point is that if, if, the, if the counting starts going on rote, and it just starts acting, you know, just going along by itself, you know you've, it's really just another form of wandering mind. It's spaced out. And so then you start at one again. So you just, so it's a, it's a way of staying connected, but really the most important thing is to have 95% of your sensitivity on the feeling of that step. Because so, what we're trying to do with all these practices to begin with is to bring, harmonize our mind and body, to have them in the same location. So to be able to accommodate uh, what, ex- what our experience is as a human. We know all, again, a, a, a lot about ourselves and about the world, but we don't know ourselves directly. And that's, that's a lot of why the wisdom doesn't flow from our consciousness so well. And the love doesn't flow so well because we, we're so disembodied. So you just come back, come back, come back. And eventually we take off the training wheels and there's just stepping. Please. I think we need the microphone for you, if you don't mind. I'm noticing as I'm able to have more moments of embodiment, more moments of being present, that, for lack of a better phrase, I'll call it, my system is kind of fighting back so that conflictual dreams are much more present some somatic stuff, headaches, muscle tension, as if my system is fighting back against this growing capacity. And I'm just wondering. That's a good, uh, it may be, it may be a relationship, but it could be a story that you're telling yourself about those things. Could be that those things are just happening. And what we try to do meditatively and notice this is what's happening now and try to accommodate that. Try to work with it, do what you have to do to stretch or whatever you do, but mostly not to, not to immediately go into interpretation that, oh, this is because I'm, my mind is fighting back against this greater capacity. If you, if you, if you take that view, then it, it's almost discouraged. It could feel like it's discouraging of you, of this growing ability to be present. Maybe there's a connection, maybe there's not. So I'd be an agnostic about that, if you know what I mean. Well, thanks. <laughs> on, the other hand, on the other hand, it may be true, and it wouldn't be surprising that, uh, I, and, it's, and it's a function, I think you may be, you could be onto something, you could be a story. But the part that is really lawful and happens for everyone in their meditation practice when they start orienting to be present, there, is a, there are increasing moments of what we call purity of mind, where our, we're just here, we're open to our life as it's presenting itself. And when, you could call it the sweet spot, when we experience that sweet spot, our mind relaxes and it opens. And it is pretty much immediately followed by exactly the opposite. Right. where we cannot be present, 
where we're very reactive, very pissed off. You know, it could be, and it seems almost more exaggerated than before, but it's really not. It's just you're noticing it more. But we, the way we describe the cycles of practice are periods of purity followed by purification. Purity, purification. So it's like a roller coaster. And that's actually the lawful way that it unfolds. People will often interpret the, the more contracted, more reactive thing as, as, oh, my practice was going fine before, but now it's gone backwards. It's actually a sign that the practice is deepening, that we start feeling more and more those periods of reactivity. That's why the emphasis in our practice is not for just purity. The emphasis is on equanimity, being able to enjoy the times of peace and also to work with equally the times where our jaw is clenching or discharging a lot of dreams. But it sounds a little bit like purity and purification. Let's be agnostics and say, oh, this is what's happening right now. Let's see if we can experience it directly without necessarily um, needing or having an interpretation of it. Last comment or question right in the back. Wait, wait for the microphone, please. So I just fall asleep. What's going on? I mean, I, you know, when my head's down on my chest and I'm probably even snoring. Um. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, it's a big topic. And I'll, t- I'll talk about it in a variety of ways. One, one primary um, reason we fall asleep is, uh, let me put it this way, there is a balance in everyone's life and practice between energy and tranquility. When we have too much energy... And low tranquility, what do we experience? Restlessness and agitation. When we have a lot of tranquility and not much energy, we start to drift into sleep. We call it, and we joke about it at Spirit Rock, it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, in the hall. <laughs> and so meditatively, we can see that and often the first thing that happens for people when they practice is their mind and body come together. They begin to experience tranquility. But their vital energy, most of our vital energy, because of the busyness, the stress, the demands of our life, our vital energy is diminished. And our vital energy diminished through our reactions, through taking on all the impressions of life, through doing everything it takes a little more time for it to, to come back. So we often get tranquility before energy. So there's often a lot of dullness at the beginning of a practice period. You should see that when we do residential retreats here, the first three days people are, are mostly sleeping. And as, the, as there's a healing of the body and there's a more safety, vital energy starts picking up, and it's amazing. It, we call it the Vipassana facelift. Where people, the light comes into people's eyes, they literally lose 10 years, and just a kind of uh, natural buoyancy and, 
and wakefulness, and pretty soon it takes no effort to stay awake. And then you, you mix that with the tranquility, and there's, there's a real sense of the world. I, so, that, so that's one thing. Sometimes that, that low energy is an insight into the way we've been living our lives. So whatever we can do to help rebuild our vital energy in the, whole, in the totality of our life is getting more sleep, uh, spending a little less time in the imagined past and future because they're, they're deadening. The, the present is very vital, so different from past and future, which is just mental. And they don't exist either. The past and future do not exist as a thing or a place. They're just ideas in the present moment. And to the degree that we're living in it, we're actually losing touch with our vitality. So the more you're here, the more you'll start to feel that that you're plugged into a, a current that's inexhaustible. But at first, the tranquility comes without the energy. The second reason that people tend to drift off is it's a habit. It's a habit of when things are, when we're confronted with the, the wondrousness or the vastness of immediacy, with the feeling that I'm not defined by my story right here. It's too much, it feels too much to handle at first, and we just check out. So, so sometimes it's just a habit of, of not knowing how to be present. Sometimes it is the threshold we get dull and sleepy when we're on the threshold of recognizing something that we're, that's, that's new, that's beyond our experience. So it's a, it can be a kind of fear reaction. So it can be a number of things. What we try to do is not, in the same way that I was responding to you, not a, ascribe a theory to it immediately, but just keep working with it as a state. Like each time you wake up, you take a more precise posture. You can practice with your eyes open. You can pull on your ears. You can feel free to stand up. And I'm hoping everyone, when you're dull today, that you stand up. That little extra energy to hold your body up will balance the tranquility. And you'll, you can have just as equal productive practice standing, just as the, as the Buddha recommended. In the meantime, we just work with it. And you pick up the pace on your walking. But it takes some continuity of practice to build your energy little bits and pieces here and there, it doesn't, uh, it, it won't be enough energy to balance the tranquility. Hope that wasn't too exciting. Anyway, I appreciate all of your comments and questions. We'll make time for more as the day goes on. And we'll begin the afternoon with a, the last phase about, um, the last part about wisdom, and then we'll move much more into the the compassion element, but they're really one and the same, as you'll see as the day goes on. So for now, we will we'll have a about um, I'd say fifty to fifty-five minutes for lunchtime, and I'd like you to invite you to carry the continuity of practice, the building of your vital energy, even during your eating. Not a time to distract, but a time to engage in the in the food that you're eating, to take a few moments as you're about to eat to reflect on how that food came to you. This is really a, a very central part of the wisdom and compassion 
the mingling of wisdom and compassion is that we are made up, our body is made up of what we eat. And what we eat is made up of that, the farmer, the grocer, the sun, the rain, all the elements of nature. Our mind and body are not, are made up of non-personal elements. Almost every element of our being has come to be through the result of causes and conditions outside of our control. And that includes our own mental habits. So as my friend Wes Nisker says, you are not your fault. <laughs> and then, so the, the wider implication of that is that um, your self-judgment, your judgment of others, uh, is a very narrow, um, confused, diluted view of reality. The more we understand how everyone how you and everyone is the inheritor of, of non-personal causes, of, our, of circumstances, the effect of that is that we can no longer uh, regard somebody as absolutely bad, wrong, and to blame for what they say, do, or think. We see that it's all made up of non-personal elements. And the seeing of that... Uh, helps us to see that they can't help themselves. We can't help ourselves up to this point. And in that, the, the self-distrust and self-judgment, we see are grievous errors in perception. Again, I'll expand on this in the afternoon. But one of the first ways of remembering that we, are, we don't exist apart from everything that influences us is around the food that we eat. How it got here, we take it for granted. And it, it actually makes this mind and body work. So reflect on that for a few moments. Then see if you can actually use it as a means of loving the living present. Tasting, chewing, swallowing. Stay with the practice. Preferably stay with noble silence. It's very rare, a rare opportunity to step out of your whole personality view and just be with the six. There's really only six experiences ever happening to anybody's life. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So for us to have that first-hand experience of life and not just the, the second-hand experience of through our personality and our memories and our thoughts, which are all wonderful, but they overlook the immediacy of our life. And that's the opportunity for practice. So eat mindfully, feel the texture, chew, swallow. Do some walking before you come back for the afternoon for the purpose of arousing a little energy. The first sitting of the afternoon. I shouldn't say it, but it's often... (laughs) Maybe we'll do a little standing practice to start. But this afternoon we'll keep going and hopefully the topic will be covered as the day goes on. Please be mindful. Transition is equal to the eating, to the walking, everything the same. Thanks for the morning. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.